Today on the podcast, I sit down with Marshall Goldsmith, who's been recognized for years as the world's leading executive coach. Marshall has worked with more world-class leaders and executives than anyone else on the planet. He's been doing this for decades now. Uh, He's worked with hundreds of the world's top executives, and he's a member of the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame. He is the only two-time Thinkers 50 number one leadership thinker in the world. And we dive all into the things Marshall has found most impactful, not only for leadership, leadership, but how to live a deeper, more fulfilling, richer life, or what he calls the earned life. So if you're curious about what the best leadership coach in the world has learned, then you will love this conversation with Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and if you've enjoyed any of the podcasts over the years, I would love, and I truly mean love, if you check out my Momentum Makers Inner Circle community. Now, this is just a community for growth mindset learners. I mean, people who are really voracious learners. They're interested in growing and expanding and uncovering the foundational principles, mindsets, and commonalities that I've synthesized down after sitting down with hundreds of the world's most successful people. This really is a community for people who who want to create positive change in their own lives. You're a voracious learner. You're a seeker of wisdom. You're a pursuer of self-mastery. And what you get for being part of this community is you get unlimited access to my expert masterclass calls. And so what these are is calls with people who have been on the podcast where you get to ask them specific questions and we go deep on certain topics. You also become part of this community. You get exclusive access to our monthly community calls where we discuss ideas and we grow together. You also get unlimited access to all of my book recaps. There's 50 plus I've done and I put more out each week. You also get access to my distillery, which are the mini biographies on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You also get my Momentum Monday weekly newsletter. So if you're interested in this, I would love for you to continue to grow and grow with us, our Momentum Maker community. So you guys can click the link below and check it out. Marshall, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm doing really well. Uh, I'm so excited to, to dive into this with you, someone who just has so much experience, so much knowledge over so many years. And speaking of so many years and doing things consistently, you've received a phone call each day for the last 25 years, and I'm intrigued about that. And I would love to know, what is the reasoning for this phone call, and what have you learned from this? I'm glad you brought that up, so I'm going to turn off my cell phone so I don't get the call while we're talking. (laughs) But for 25 years, someone calls me every day They kind of remind me to do what I teach. And somebody asked me, why do you have someone call you every day? Don't I know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory about how to change behavior. That's why I have someone call me every day. I know how hard this is. You see, my name is Marshall Goldsmith. I got ranked number one leadership thinker coach in the whole world. I have to have someone call me up every day to make sure I do this stuff. Why? 
I'm too cowardly and undisciplined to do any of this stuff by myself. I need help. I need help. And you know what? It's okay. We all need help. I need help. You need help. My clients need help. We all need help. Once we admit we need help and get over that macho willpower, I can do everything on my own nonsense, life's better for everybody. How many of the top 10 tennis players have a coach? 10? Yeah, well, 10. Twilight Tharp, world's greatest choreographer, has the same instructor every day to help her work out. She knows how to work out. Why does she have a personal trainer every day? That's why she looks good at age 80. That's why she's still pretty. What? She works out all the time. <laughs> she can do it on her own. If the trainer's not there to kick her butt, it's not going to happen. Well, she's smart. So I think once we get over this, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book, The Art Life, is a chapter called Asking for Help. Get help. Marshall, I'm intrigued by this because it's been for the past 25 years. Is this something that, that took a, a number of years to get to, the ability to, to be vulnerable, ask for help there? Oh, look, uh, this is very non-Western. We're, we're brought up with this idea that especially leaders and important people shouldn't have to ask for help, that we should be the strong provider of help to others and above this ourselves. And again, that, that's really, there's no logic to that. Uh, and one thing I'm so proud of in my book, if you've seen my book, the first six pages are the endorsements of my book. Those are amazing people. And one thing I'm proud of is they all say, you know what, I have a coach. I need help. 30 years ago, none of those people would have said they had a coach. 30 years ago, they would have been ashamed to have had a coach, embarrassed to have a coach. Well, today, these are a lot of best leaders in the world saying, you know what, I need help. It's okay. So I think, you know, the world has changed. Uh, funny story. Funny story. It is in a book. I'm 28 years old. This is like a zillion years ago. 28 years old. I'm some kid. And IBM is the God company of eternity. So I was like, IBM is the best company in the world. And second place was way down here. IBM does some study and they find that, you know, one of the weak areas for their managers is providing coaching. Okay. So they do all this millions of dollars worth of training on teaching people to be coaches. Well, you know what they found out? It had absolutely zero impact, no impact. So they hire me to figure out what's going on. So I interview the managers. I interviewed them at direct report say, is your boss doing a good job of coaching? No, 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 not a good job. I asked the manager, does your employee ever ask for coaching? Never. I asked the employee, do you ever ask for coaching? No. I looked at their performance appraisal system. You can't make this up. I look at their performance appraisal system. You know what the definition of a top performer was? Performs effectively with no need for coaching. <laughs> <laughs> now they're wondering, oh, gee. It's a problem. Well, you know, anytime the manager tries to coach the subordinate, you know what the subordinate says? No, boss. Yeah. You see, I perform effectively with no need for coaching. <laughs> well, you know what? We all need help. And I think, you know, getting over that macho nonsense of I can do it on my own just makes life better for everybody. I'm intrigued then. So many, so many years ago, even getting involved initially with coaching, what drew you to it from the early days? Well, let's see. My background is I, I met a, um, I got a PhD. I was getting my PhD from UCLA. I met a very famous man named Dr. Paul Hersey, invented situational leadership with Ken Blanchard. So, you know, he was kind enough to let me follow him around, go to his program. I literally served the coffee and, you know, the water. And all. So, so did you actually ask him, can I just kind of follow you around here? Oh, yeah. And I'm, I've done a lot of dumb things. That was <laughs> 
the smart things I did. I just follow him around because he's a great teacher. What, and, so, sorry to jump in here. I would love to know when you decided to follow him around and ask him about that, what were you hoping would be the outcome from that? I wanted to be him. Hmm. He was the highest paid consultant in the world in our field at that time. And also, not only that, I love teaching. He's, he's the best teacher I've ever seen. I said, I want to be like this guy. He was a far better teacher than anybody at UCLA. And so I just sat in the back of the room and tried to learn as much as I could and practicing and stuff. And then one day he got double booked. And he said, can you do what I do? Can you do what I do? I said, I don't know. He said, look, I need help. Can you do it? And I said, I don't know. He said, I'll pay $1,000 for a day. I was making $15,000 a year. Yeah, what year was this? This was, um, I was 28 years old. So what was that, 45 years ago? Okay. It was a long time. $1,000 a day, 45 yeah, a years ago. And by the way, to a kid whose entire business experience is pumping gas in Valley Station, Kentucky, <laughs> 1000 bucks a day. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going, bingo, you're in the front row. So he said, you want to try? I said, I'll try. <laughs> so I wrote this program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. They are pissed off when I show up because I'm not him. But I got ranked first place of all the speakers. So after that, they called him back and said, Paul, send this guy again. He's good. Paul said, and he calls me up and he said, you want to do this again? I said, let me consider this. I'm making 15000 bucks a year. You're paying me 1000 bucks a day. I got an 800 on the SAT math achievement test. Not really needed for this one. No. <laughs> there, that's how I got into uh that's how I got into leadership development and coaching, the same kind of thing. I, this guy's a CEO. He's working for a big company. And he said, I got this kid working for us, young, smart, dedicated, hardworking jerk. He said, it'd be worth a fortune to me if I could change the kid's behavior. <laughs> I fortune again. Hey, fortune. I love fortune. Yeah. Yeah, how about me? I think maybe I can help him. He said, I doubt it. I said, maybe I can help him. He said, I don't think so. Then I came up with an idea. So I work with this kid for a year. If he gets better, pay me. If you don't get better, it's free. You know what he said? Sold. Hmm. There was nothing called executive coaching. There was no field of coaching. I made this up. <laughs> well, it's usually helpful to be the, the, the first in an industry than trying to just get into an industry and differentiate. Marshall, there, there's a few things I would love to jump into uh, at first because when preparation meets opportunity, you were given that opportunity, but you said you were voted the best speaker. What were you doing in the early days to set yourself up for success to then and then even to now? Well, one is I followed him around to learn to do what he did. So I had a great role model. Two, I showed a lot of initiative. Hmm. But three, to be perfectly fair, that's a gift. I was 28 years old. I uh, had never done anything like that in my life. I had zero business experience. These are people that manage billions of dollars. So remember, that was just, Part of that is just a gift. I love speaking. I love teaching. And part of that is just a gift. I, it wasn't all, I, I hadn't worked that hard for that level of success. So I was lucky in that regard. Now, the other thing I was saved by two of the factors. One, I was bald. So I looked a whole lot older than I was. So being bald was bald, good. Bald, and, and number two, I was too stupid to know how important they were. Had I really known how important they were, I'd probably been scared to death. But I was saved by a couple of factors. One is baldness, and the other one was stupidity. <laughs> baldness and stupidity, two things I don't know if we can fully count on all the time in life, but they pop up occasionally. Another thing you mentioned, though, is uh, is working with that 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 one employee who, who could have been a very challenging situation where you said, if, if this doesn't work, you don't have to pay me. 
there's a lot of self-belief. There's a lot of trust within yourself. Is that something you had always had? Yeah, I, I have many flaws in life. Lack of nerve has never really been one of my problems. <laughs> were, were there early experiences that led to that or just? As a coach, I, I coach people for 40 years. I didn't get paid if they didn't get better. Yeah. Well, we've had on uh, someone you, you've worked a lot with, Hubert Jolie, uh, the former CEO of Best Buy. And he, he brought you up at the impact that you had on his life. Um, and I know he mentioned that was one, one of the agreements that <laughs> unless unless he improves, you're not getting paid. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like a like an obvious philosophy with some regard, right? But also, most people don't do that. Why, why did you decide to take that as your path? Well, one, I'll tell you a story about this. Years ago, I was a kid back in Kentucky, and I was 14. And we had a hole in the roof, so the roof starts leaking. We were poor. So dad gets this roofer, Dennis Mudd, to fix the roof. And Dennis Mudd has me help him just to save money. So, we have, you know, all the grunt work, I'm helping him do the grunt work to save us some money. And, you know, he's really a nice, he worked hard and really wants to make a good roof. He's teaching me about the roof and stuff. It's one of the hardest jobs I ever had. Put on a roof is hard, right? In the summer in Kentucky. But we get done. So Dennis Mudd goes to my dad, Bill. He says, you know, Bill, I want you to inspect that roof. He said, Bill, if that roof is of high quality, pay me. If it's not, this is all free. Now, Dennis Mudd was poor. He needed the money. He didn't have to do that, but he did. I looked at Dennis Mudd. I was a kid, you know what I thought? This guy's got class. He's got no money, but he's got a lot of dignity. And after that, I said, I want to be like him when I grow up. I want to be like Dennis Mudd. You know, proud of what you do. If you know if it's, the results are no good, don't pay me. And don't take advantage of people. And, and I, you know, I've never, although I've gotten paid for results for 40 years, I've never had as much integrity as he has. But he needed the money for him. No money, no food. That's that's an incredible story. And it it always struck me, strikes me, that those those little moments that last with us for for lifetimes. Oh yeah. It, yeah. I mean you you tell you 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 tapped into your heart with that one, um, the impact that's had. Are there are there any other foundational life lessons that hit hit similar to that one? Well, that was one. I got another one at UCLA. I am, um, at this time, I'm maybe uh, 20, oh, 24, 25. I'm getting my PhD. And uh, the guru figure is old Dr. Bob Tannenbaum. And he's like in the popular articles and full professors. He's the hero figure, right? So we're in what's called encounter groups. So for, you know, uh, we encourage to talk about what we want to talk about. So. For, I'm in this group of 11 people. So for three weeks, I babbled about people in Los Angeles. You know, people in Los Angeles are plastic and shallow and materialistic, and they drive around in these $200,000 Bentleys, and they wear $85 secret blue jeans, and you know, all they care about is impressing others, and they're not really into deep and profound things like, of course, me. Well, after about three weeks, old Dr. Tannenbaum scratches his beard. He goes, Marshall, who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? I said, well, I guess I'm talking to everyone in the group. He said, I do not know if you know this. Every time you've spoken, you've looked at only one person. You seem interested in the opinion of only one person. Who is that person? I thought about it. I said, that's interesting. That would be you. We said, well, I mean, there's 10 other people here. 
I said, you know, you know, Dr. Bob, I think a person with your extreme background and experience in our field can understand the true significance of what I'm saying about how screwed up it is just to try to impress people all the time. So then he says, you know, Marshall, is there any chance for three weeks? All you've been doing is trying to impress me. To which I replied, well, no. I said, I am very disappointed. I think you have misunderstood everything I've been saying. I've been talking about how screwed up that is. I think you misunderstood everything I've said. He looks at me, he scratches his ear. I think I understand. I look around and see these 10 heads. I hated his guts for six months. Six months later, what did I say? Thank you, Dr. Tannerbaum, sir. You just taught me a nice lesson about life. It's real easy to see our problems where? Out there. Not so easy to see our problems where? In here. Another incredible lesson there. I'm thinking now you've been able to essentially allow all of these executives, all of these leaders to get a better understanding of themselves. What have you done in the years of your coaching that has helped with greater self-awareness? Well, they all get confidential feedback. So they all get confidential feedback from everyone around them. And I'm Dr. Tannenbaum. And I sit there and I say, okay, this is the way the world sees you. You may or may not like it, but this is the way the world sees you. If it doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother me. You want to change or not? Also, you see, I learned another great lesson about coaching from my friend Alan Mulally. Alan Mulally, Hubert is a great leader. The only guy I'd say might even be perceived as a better leader than Hubert over the last 30 years is Alan Mulally. Alan was the CEO of Ford when the stock goes from 101 to 1840. It went up 1,837% while he was CEO. And he got a 97% approval rating from every employee in a union company, number three greatest leader in the world. And he's an amazing guy. And he's a great friend. So we're working on a book together now. So I go to Alan and I said, Alan, of all the people I've ever coached, you improved the most, yet I spent the least amount of time with you, and you were great to start with. And I said, Alan, I made a chart. One one dimension is called time spent with Marshall Goldsmith. The other was called improvement. There seems to be a clear negative correlation between spending time with me and getting better. So I said, Alan, uh, you know the way this chart looks, and you never met me, you'd really be good. So I said, now, what should I learn about coaching from you? Alan taught me a great lesson. He said, number one, never. Your whole, he said, your whole job, Marshall, is client selection. You pick great customers, you win. You pick bad customers, you lose. And he said, never make the coaching process about yourself and your own ego and how smart you think you are. Make it about those wonderful people you coach, how proud you are of them. That changed my life. That changed my life. My whole job. Well, I got ranked number one coach in the world forever. Why? Nobody knows I'm a good coach. They never watch me coach anybody. But you know, you know what? I got great customers. I may not be the best coach in the world, but I can tell you, I get the best clients in the world. You read that book, read the first seven names on the endorsement list. Those are pretty amazing people. Yeah, it's truly remarkable. Some of the people you've been able to work with. What what allows you to have great client selection then? What are you what are you looking for even before the relationship would start to determine if, if this could be a great selection? Oh well, I'm very clear with my clients. If I work with you, you will get confidential feedback. You will apologize for your mistakes. You will involve your coworkers. You will follow up on a regular basis. You will get measured. And then if that happens, I get paid. If, and then I say, if you don't want to do all this stuff, it's okay. 
He said, okay, I'm just not going to work with you. I'm not judging you. I don't care. You're a successful adult. If, I, if you're going to work with me, you got to do this stuff. You got to work. You don't want to work? It's just fine. I'll work with somebody else. I, I know you select the clients who are willing to work. What have you discovered? Because I feel like so many times we know the right step to take, but we don't take action. And I'm wondering what you've uncovered about that. Why, why can we know the correct thing but not take action in life? Because of follow-up. I mean, let me give you – follow-up is what's key. If you look – I did a research – if anyone wants to copy the study, send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com. It's called Leadership as a Context Board, 86,000 people. And measures – people went through my courses. Did they follow up regularly and did they get better? Well, the people that go to my courses and don't do follow-up don't improve. The people that follow up on a regular basis improve a lot. But what I learned is it's not about me, like Alan Mulally said, it's about them. You got to do hard work. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nobody got muscles by watching me lift waves. Well, the problem is not understanding the theory of what to do. The problem is doing it. It's easy. Why do I have somebody call me? I wrote the book. I know the theory. Why does someone call me? This stuff is hard. To, by the way, anybody that says the stuff I teach is easy to do has never done it. Anyone that says the stuff I teach is easy to do has never done it because the people that have done it never say it's easy to do. It takes a lot of courage. It takes humility and it takes a discipline to do this stuff. You mentioned doing that phone call every single day for 25 years. This kind of creates a structure because um, we know by default we're, uh, we fall back on, our, on those impulses. Uh, I'm wondering, are there any other things that you've done like that that have been really helpful for you over the years in terms of creating structure? I'm going to teach people something now. Everyone that's listening, I'm going to teach them something that takes three minutes a day, costs nothing, help you get better in almost anything. Now, some people are skeptical. Three minutes a day, costs nothing, help me get better in almost anything. That sounds too good to be true. Half the people who start doing this quit in two weeks. They don't quit because it doesn't work. They quit because it does work. Well, this is called daily questions. Get out a spreadsheet. On one column, write down a list of questions to represent what's most important in your life. Friends, family, health, coworkers, job, whatever it is. Every question has to be answered with yes, no, or a number. Yes is recorded as a one. No is recorded as a zero or a number. Seven boxes across, one for every day of the week. End of the week, you get a report card. I'm going to warn all of our listeners. That report card at the end of the week week is not going to be as beautiful as a corporate values plaque you see stuck up on the wall. Hmm. I've been doing this 25 years. You know, one thing, you know, you read my bio, very fancy bio. One thing that's left out there is I had an incredible talent that wasn't mentioned on the bio. That's the ability to screw something up every day. It wasn't there mentioned on the bio too much, but I've been amazed with my skill on a daily basis of screwing something up. Have you ever impressed yourself with your uncanny ability to screw things up an, an hour ago hour and a half ago six times yesterday <laughs> reoccurring theme marshall <laughs> Look, here's the problem when you look at these answers every day you get to look at it yeah and it's not that pretty you get to look at it and you know what you very quickly learn you learn that life is incredibly easy to talk hmm. life is incredibly difficult to live and when you look at this every day, you don't just look at those beautiful talk values. Yeah, man, we've all got these talk values. Those things are pretty. Look at those live values, you know. Well, usually not quite so beautiful as the talk values. And let me give you six questions. And if everybody just asks these six questions every day, they're going to have a better life. And they all begin with the phrase, did I do my best to? 
Now, my daughter Kelly is a professor here at Vanderbilt, so she taught me this technique of active active questions. Did I do my best to? And what's good about that? You can't blame someone else. Hmm. Question letting say succeed. Even try number one. Did I do my best to set clear goals every day? Did I do my best to make progress toward achieving my goals? Did I do my best to find meaning every day? Rather than waiting for the world to give you meaning, did you do your best to create meaning? Did I do my best to be happy? Rather than waiting for everybody to make you happy, did you do your best to make yourself happy? Did I do my best to build positive relationships? And did I do my best to be fully engaged? Every day, just ask these six questions. Well, guess what? You get better. You get better. Just ask yourself these. And by the way, these questions are hard to face every day. Why? It doesn't even say you succeeded. Did you even try? Did you even try? One of the things I'm intrigued by, and, and your book, The Earned Life, does, does a good job teasing this out, is uncovering the, those really important things. What matters, right? Like clarity around those big things and deciding what you want your life to look like. And then, and then you say, obviously, you need to take action on that. What have you done over the years and have you seen your clients do that help them tease out those really important foundational things? Because I'll just speak from my experience. A lot of people say, I, I haven't stepped back. I don't know what is most important to me for li in life. So I have a tough time making decisions. I tend to hear that a lot. Well, to me, give yourself one question that's going to help clarify this. And that question is Why? So in my book, I talk about aspiration, ambitions, and our actions. Our aspirations are that big picture of why am I here? Why am I doing this for? What's important to me? And our aspirations do not have a timeline. Our aspirations don't have a finish line. They go on. Then the next level is our ambitions. That's what am I trying to achieve? And that does have a finish line. That's a set time, work, do things, get results. And then finally, there are actions. That's our day-to-day -day activities. What am I doing now? And assuming you have a middle-class level of income, assuming you have people you love, and assuming you're healthy, that's it. You align these three things, you're going to have a great life. It's the key to life. Well, the aspiration part is you need to ask yourself why. Okay, I'm working hard. We're all working hard. Why am I working hard? What is the bigger purpose of this? It doesn't have to be religious. But you need to have some larger purpose to define why are you doing what you're doing. Now, if we look at life, historically, most humans have been lost in the action phase. They've been lost in day-to-day -day activity. Why? They didn't have any money. They were poor. They were living day-to-day. -day. And, and most people today are still lost. They play video games today. They uh, watch the Kardashians. They go to work. They do things. You're just living day-to-day -day lives. Not a bad thing or a good thing, just most people, that's where they live. They're not my clients. Some people are lost in the aspiration phase. Lofty ideas, great goals, theories, but they don't do anything to achieve things. You know, they're just great. You know, they preach a lot, but don't do a lot. The people that listen to you right now and the people that buy my books, that's not their major problem. People listening to us right now, the people I coach, they get stuck in the ambition and achievement phase. They tend to be achievaholics. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about being overweighted with achievement. You see, we've been brought up in the West to believe once I achieve something, everything's going to be okay. And if I achieve more, it's going to get better. Almost all self-help books are based on one thing. Here's how you achieve more. 
as if achieving more is going to really change your life a lot. Well, if you look at achievement, if we're not careful, we forget, number one, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Or we forget, number two, to enjoy the process of life. We get so wrapped up in work, we forget to enjoy life. So very important. One of the guys in the book is named Safi Bacall. And now, oh, by the way, what inspired my book was over COVID, 60 brilliant people whose names are in the book. 60 brilliant people. Mark Thompson and I spent every weekend six hours with these people talking about their lives for, for two years over COVID. We spent hundreds of hours talking with these people every weekend. That's what led to the book. Well, one of the guys is Safi Bacall. I don't know if you ever met him. He's a great guy. Safi's been one of the rare two-time guests' appearances on this podcast. I, I love Safi, his innate curiosity. He, he's a wonderful human being. I love Safi. Well, Safi is in our group, right? So you know Safi has a PhD in physics from Stanford. He has started businesses, made millions of dollars. He wrote a book called Loon Shots. He's consulted to presidents. And he's just a good guy. Smart guy. So he's probably IQ is equal to yours and mine combined. So, you know, very, very smart guy. So Safi is in our group. And he said, you know, I learned one thing from Curtis Martin, who's a former football player. I said, what was it? He said, I used to think that happiness was a dependent variable based on achievement. And that if I achieve enough, I will be happy. And he said, I finally realized that happiness and achievement are independent variables. You can achieve a whole lot and be happy. And you can achieve a whole lot and be miserable. You can achieve nothing and be happy. You can achieve nothing and be miserable. He said, achievement is good for achievement. As happiness is good for happiness. These are independent variables. Well, see, this to me, in a way, is almost ironic. So I said to Safi, look, you already got a PhD in physics from Stanford, and you've already written a successful book, and blah, 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 but you're already at 99.999 in terms of achievement now. You really think getting to a 99.9999 is going to make you happy? <laughs> if you haven't achieved enough to be happy, right, nobody has. <laughs> what do you got to do? It's a great breakthrough for him. And in, in the West, we have been inundated with one message. You will be happy when. When I get the money, status, BMW, achievement, condominium, you will be happy when. And, and we believe that once we get to when, everything's going to be fine. Well, there is no when. There's one book that always has the same ending, and they lived happily ever after. It's called a fairy tale. Yeah. That's not the real world. In the real world, we start over every day. One of the things that, that you've mentioned multiple times here is the Western mode of thought. And I know for the last 50 years, you've studied a lot around Buddhism. And I'm just curious, what have you most taken away from your practices there? Well, you know, a lot of my book, The Earned Life, is a Buddhist philosophy book, basically. And so I've read about 400 books on Buddhism. So there are many schools of Buddhist thought. I make no claim that my school is better or worse than someone else's. Buddha said, only do what I teach if it works for you. Well, given that, you know, there are many interpretations of Buddhism. My interpretation is this. The at least metaphorical Buddha, if there was a real Buddha or not, but was brought up rich, lived in a palace, and his dad thought he'll be happy, the king, if he gets more. He kept trying to give him more and more and more. He lived in a bubble. One day he was able to sneak out of the bubble, and you know what he learned? 
people get old. Hmm. Sucks. Sneaks out a second time. People get sick. Ew. Third time. Die. Old sick die. He said, old sick die. That's no good. All this more, more, more stuff's not going to get it. He went out in the woods and starved himself and lived like a hermit. He tried to be happy with less. You know, he learned. And it work either. One night he realized something. You can never be happy with more. You can never be happy with less. There's only one thing in life you can ever be happy with. What you have. Only one time in life you can ever be happy. Now. There's only one place you can ever be happy. Here. This is it. Where is Nirvana? Nirvana is listening to a podcast with an old ball guy right now. Here it is. <laughs> It's not out there someplace. No, 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 no. It's all right here. It's not out there. It's all here. So that's basically my school of Buddhist thought. How long did it take you to fully grasp that principle? Was it something you latched onto right away in your exploration into Buddhism? Because I, I like we were talking about before, certain people can ha hear that concept. And for some reason, it never clicks. And so I'm just intrigued why it's stuck so deeply for you. The reality is, if I had fully grasped that concept, I probably would not have to have someone calling me on the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a valid point. <laughs> so I'm not in no way pretending I fully grasped much of anything. Let me give you a good technique for the listeners that's in the book. This came from my friend Carol Kaufman. She was just down here in Nashville visiting me. And she started the Harvard Institute for Coaching. And she taught me one thing. You know those 400 books I read? I'm going to tell you something. If you just do this, what she taught me, skip the 400 books. You can jump ahead. One question to ask yourself over and over as you're journeying through life. Carry a little card around and look at it all the time. What's this say? Am I being the person that I want to be right now? Am I being the person that I want to be right now? If the answer is yes, you won. Yeah, that's incredible. I I actually used that this morning, as, as you know, I have the, the two young kids. So we've got a, the two year old screaming, uh, freaking out. And who do I want to be in this moment? Yeah. Yeah. Am I being the dad I want to be? Now? Am I being the, the husband I want to be right now? The father I want to be right now? Am I being the son, the daughter, the friend? Am I being that person I want to be right now? One of the things we, we've talked a lot about are just some of the exercises in your book, The Earned Life. How, how do you define the earned life? Well, I always read this so I don't screw it up, right? <laughs> We're living an earned life when the choices, risks, and effort we make in each moment align with an overarching purpose in our lives, regardless of the eventual outcome. So the earned life doesn't mean... I want a trophy. The earned life means I have a, a life where what I'm doing, my day-to-day -day achievements are aligned with my, my values and aligned with my process, the enjoyment of life itself. Because, you know, you can get all the trophies in the world and have a miserable life. And you can amuse yourself a lot and achieve nothing and do nothing meaningful. To me, the definition of your earned life is you're out there just giving it your best shot every day. And it's not the outcome. It's not the outcome. It's the process. 
is there anything that, that you've done over, or have there been moments where you were too connected to the outcome and not the process? And if so, how do you, how do you re reset yourself in order to fall oh, in love again with the process? Well, yeah, this is an ongoing drama of life. It is almost impossible not to become addicted to outcomes. Why? Look, in the West, there's the great Western art form. You may have seen this a couple of times. There's a, a, a certain drama that's played out over and over. And it sounds like this. You know, there, there's a person. Oh, person is sad. Oh, they spend money. Oh, they buy a product. And they become happy. This is called a commercial. Have you ever seen one of these commercials before? We're, we're getting hit with them nonstop uh, <laughs> thanks to technology. We are hammered with this message over and over and over and over again, thousands of times. Every day we're getting this message. The message is, it's all going to be okay after you do this. And, you know, the essence, it's, it is very difficult to run counter to this message. This is, this is a very, this is the Western culture. It is very deep. And the book is not the book is very not Western culture. Yeah, I mean, again, the book. I spent a lot of time studying Buddhism, Hindu philosophy, and all that. The book is not really focused on the typical Western culture, which is it's all going to be okay when. I think that's saying something, right? Here, here's someone who's spent time with hundreds of top executive CEOs over decades and decades, and, and here you are after uh, amassing all of this knowledge, all this wisdom. And it's basically everything we're, we're be, not everything, but a lot of what we're being taught here in the West. Hmm. We, we might want to question that. Doesn't seem to be leading to the outcomes, um, the ability to fall in love with the process. I'd say it because, well, there's a Buddhist term called the hungry ghost. Hmm. The hungry ghost is I'm always eating, but I'm never full. And one of the people that endorsed the book is Albert Burla. Albert's a seal Pfizer. So I called Albert a few months ago and said, Albert, Albert, how's it going? You know, how's your year last year? I was, oh, good year, good year. And he came up with his vaccine, you know, saved a billion lives or so. Hey, good job. Got a new pill. Uh, good job. Stock all-time high. Employee engagement through the roof. Pride in the company, highest ever. I said, Albert, you're kicking butt. Any problems? Oh, he said, I have a huge problem. I have a huge problem. I said, well, what is it? Two words. Next year. If Albert Burla's value as a human being is he has to do better than last year, pack it in. Not going to happen. Michael Phelps won 25 gold medals. What do you think about doing after winning his 25th gold medal? Killing himself. Why? Can't beat last year. Can't beat last year. Well, if your value as a human being is I have to achieve, you're always going to have to beat last year. You're never going to get there. You've mentioned so many great CEOs that you've had an impact on. Uh, I, I'm intrigued when you when you think about some of those people who've had the greatest impact on you. Who comes to mind? Just because you've mentioned so many people. Well, it, one thing I'm very proud of, if you look at the book, is the very first chapter, the very first paragraph of the book before the um, endorsements. And the very first paragraph, what do I say? I'm proud of them. Yeah, they're endorsing me, but let's be clear. Who helped too? 
Let's be very clear. And I hope I communicated that message very clearly. Well, you know, who are these people that helped me? They're just amazing people. One of them is Francis Hesselbein. And Francis Hesselbein retired after 14 years as National Executive Director of the Girl Scouts of the United States and just a total inspiration. Won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Peter Drucker said the greatest leader he's ever met. So what an inspiration to me. I mean, in theory, I'm supposed to coach her, right? Yeah, sure. In practice, I'm learning much more than I'm doing. So anyway, I'll tell you a story about her. The best leadership story I've ever heard or I've ever seen. Francis calls me up and says, you know, Marshall, can you give a talk to the Girl Scout leaders from the big cities? Chicago, New York, LA, you know, all the big cities, very distinguished women. I said, Francis, I'm happy to help, but I'm just completely booked. The only day I could work is Saturday. She said, not a problem. You work on Saturday, I work on Saturday. Hey, you're the volunteer here, not me. And I said, well, Francis, I'm embarrassed to say I'm in a different city every day, and i got to get my laundry done. And, you know, I've been on the road every day. Is there any way I can, I'm embarrassed to ask, can I get my laundry done? She said, I'm not a problem. We have the Girl Scout Center. We've got laundry facilities. Not at all a problem. I said, what do I do? She said, just take your dirty laundry and put it on a pile on the floor. I'll have someone pick it up. And then when you get done, it'll all be nice and clean, and everything is fine. I said, great. So I wake up, got all my dirty laundry on the palm floor. And then I'm having breakfast with the head of the Girl Scouts in New York and L.A., all these big cities, right? Very distinguished women. And I look, walking down the hall is her. Carrying the laundry. Very powerful message. Well, she didn't have to give a speech about servant leadership. So to me, that's, you know, lead by example. What I appreciate I'm taking away here is every single one of these, these stories, which clearly impact you to your core and have lasted decades, was all right. behavior and action. It wasn't someone saying something, wasn't something written on the wall. It was no. you saw someone doing a certain action. That's it. Yeah. And the reason is it's easy to talk. I mean, I've heard many leaders give lectures about servant leadership. That's easy to say. You know what? They're not carrying the damn laundry. Yeah. They're not carrying the laundry. No, they're giving a talk. Easy to give a talk. Yeah, easy to give a talk, but the great people are the ones that live in Hubert is a great example. Now, you interviewed Hubert, is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Uh, a year and a half ago, probably. So for the listeners, I'll have that linked up in the show notes. But yeah, we, we've had him on the show. I love Hubert. Now, Hubert would tell you, and he probably mentioned it when he talked to you, and he, he's not subtle about this. Alan Mulally was fantastic when I started. So he went from fantastic to maybe more fantastic. Uh, Francis Hesselbein was, you know, Amazing before I ever met her. Hubert was good. He was good, but he had a little room for improvement. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't instinctively great with people. His ex McKinsey guy was analytical, always high integrity, good person, but not warm, not a lot of great social skills. And he worked very hard. So he's a great example of a leader who just improved a lot and did just such a spectacular job as a leader. He stands up in front of everybody, though, at Best Buy and says, hey, my name is Uber Julie. I'm CEO of Best Buy. I need you to help me. 
I need you to help me. It's not like, hello, here I am, little God here to save this company. No, I need help. So you mentioned Uber changing, evolving. I, I was intrigued and would love to know, you included at the beginning of your book, uh, a quote by William Shakespeare, presume not that I am the thing that I was. And right. I would love to, love to hear why you decided to include that. Well, you know, we all, two things. One, other people stereotype us. Now, one of the stories in the book that people like the most is a story about the husband and wife driving home after a great weekend. And the wife is talking about what a wonderful weekend they've had, and it was great, and the kids have grown up, and they've done well, and they're so proud. And then she starts in on, well, I wish 10 years ago you would have done this and that. It would have been better. And the husband says, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. And that guy 10 years ago made some mistakes. I worked very hard to try not to be that guy. And the wife says, you're exactly right. I'm sorry. I'm not talking to this guy 10 years ago. I'm talking to you now. And you have made a lot of changes, and thank you. So don't put people in a box. And the other thing is we put ourselves in a box. You know, people say that stuff like, I can't listen, I can't listen, I've never been able to listen, I can't listen. I look in their ears, why can't you listen? Is something stuck in there? <laughs> why can't you listen? We talk about ourselves as if we have incurable genetic defects that can never change. One of the biggest points in the book is impermanence. This is another Buddhist concept, impermanence. We talk about ourselves as if there is this fixed definition of who we are that goes through eternity, and that is called the real me. That's, quote, the real me, this person that drifts through eternity, the real me, as if somehow that can't ever change. And you're stuck into this box of being the real me. Well, the reality is people can change. Hubert changed. He changed. He would tell you he changed. You, you fed him on call. He, he changed a lot for the better. And he would say for the better. If you were looking back um, in terms of your own change, what has changed the most for you over the years? I would say the biggest learning I've had over the years is it's helped me the most, which I do not always implement at all. But it, when I'm smart enough to remember it is it's not about you. Hmm. Make it about you. Don't make it about me, how smart I am, how wonderful I am, how brilliant I am. And when I work with other people, it's about them. And if they don't want change, I'm not going to do anything about it. Uh, um, and I, I need to work with great people who are motivated and want to do the stuff. And if I do, look, the people I coach, let's be fair. Let's be fair. Any mediocre coach would look great if they coach these people. <laughs> I'm like a basketball coach. I got all the all-stars, right? <laughs> hey, you coach, you win. Coach the bad team, you lose, right? It doesn't matter how good of a coach you are. Well, the thing I learned is it's not really all about me. It's all about them. And to get over myself, and by the way, which I do occasionally and I don't do occasionally, to get over myself and realize it's not all about me. It's a really impactful lesson. I, I'm, I'm really interested because you've worked with, like I've said, hundreds of these leaders across different disciplines, different domains. And where do you see the balance, or maybe there's no balance at all, between that individual leader embracing their uniqueness in conjunction with universal principles of leadership? Well, it depends what the leader wants to be and what their, quote, uniqueness is. 
Uh, so if your uniqueness is you're technologically gifted and don't like people, you might not want to be a leader at all. That's fine. Everyone I work with is a leader. They are leaders. And if they are leaders, there are things they can do to become more effective, which are backed by research from thousands of people and not. And rather than saying, well, that's just the way I am, like Uber could say, my own uniqueness is I don't care much about people, but I'm very good at analytic problem solving. That's nonsense. Hmm. Why would you do that? Why would you want to hold on to this, quote, uniqueness that's dysfunctional? I think that's one of the, the big things, like you were talking about a minute ago, with impermanence. We get latched onto these old beliefs, these old concepts of the way things are, and then get locked right. into thinking that we can't change them. Well, look, look at it this way. Let's let's imagine that your your identity is I'm a bad listener. Now, I work with you for a year and you get feedback from everyone who says you're a great listener. If I do not help you understand your identity, even though your feedback will be positive on the inside, you're going to feel like a phony or a hypocrite. You know what you're going to think? But that's not the real me. I'm just acting like a good listener. That's not the real me. The real me is a bad listener. Well, that's nonsense. There's no such thing as the real you. What are some of these other universal principles of outstanding leadership? I have to assume there's been multiple qualities and behaviors that you've seen again and again. And I'm wondering what comes to mind for you when you think about some of these great people you've worked with. Well, you know, a lot of the qualities of great leadership are the same now as they would have been, you know, a zillion years ago or a zillion years in the future. You know, things like people, integrity, quality, you know, dedication to customer, all that kind of stuff. And there have been myriad books written about those. And they all say about the same thing, which I'm, you know, Jim, uh, Jim Cousins wrote a great book called The Leadership Challenge. It talks about qualities of great leaders. If you wrote the book 25 years ago, it's still equally valid today. And so all of this stuff is still, still valid today. My job is not really what makes a great leader. It's just helping the great leaders who are already great leaders get better. Hmm. So my whole mission is not fixing losers. It's helping winners. If you do a Google search, helping successful leaders in quotes, the first 500 hits you're going to see, 450 are me. Hmm. And the rest of the world is 50. So that's my brand. One of the things you mentioned is selection around clients. You want great clients. I'm also wondering the impact environment has on these leaders. Can you take an exceptional leader, put them in a tumultuous environment, and will they ha will they have a successful outcome, or is environment too strong of an influence? Very important point. Now you're missing a key point of the book. Great leader equals great outcome. No. No. Great leader does not necessarily equal great outcome. One of the worst CEOs I've ever met got all kinds of praise of being a great leader. Why? He's a pharmaceutical company. The company came up with a product. The product made a zillion dollars. He was an awful CEO. He lacked integrity. He had sex with the secretary. He was doing immoral things with the board. But, you know, he's written up as this great leader. Well, why? He got results. Well, he didn't get results because of anything he did. He got results in spite of what he did. So that's back to results. Those are two different questions. By the way, anybody can get good or bad results based on factors they don't control. That doesn't mean they are or are not a great leader. A great leader is a person who gets the best they can with what they have to work with. And it doesn't always work. 
I mean, look at Albert. Albert's not going to repeat last year. Why? Oh, we don't want him to repeat last year. We don't want there to be another pandemic. There's only so many heroes we can stand to live with here. You know, we don't want him to repeat last year. Doesn't mean he's not a great leader. The other thing is, by the way, people change. Let me give you another group of people I work with, ex-athletes. Ex-athletes, disasters, typically. Pro football, often. Bankrupt. Bankrupt, divorced, depressed, pro basketball. Not as bad, but still terrible. Why? Their whole definition is that moment of glory. And they're always going to try to do better than that last year. Not going to happen. You get old. And interesting thing, do you know how a lot of ex-athletes lose their money? I never knew this. I mean, I thought about drugs, alcohol, women, you know, standard stuff, cars. A lot of it is they give it away. They literally give the money away to try to buy love. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. So what they need to do is, and Curtis Martin is a great positive example of what to do. He's got a, he's happy, he's productive, he makes money, he's trying to help people. He's like, he's in the book, he's an A-plus, number five rusher in National Football League history, just an A-plus human being. And he's always got a higher purpose, though. His identity as a human being was not how many yards did he gain. He was never, his never identity was some outcome of how many yards he gained. So he's always striving to be a better and better person. And he's, he's a positive, very positive case study. Marshall, what are you start uh, striving for right now then? Well, my mission, if you look at me, aspiration, ambition. Mm-hmm. My, my uh, aspiration is pretty simple. I want to make the positive difference in as many lives as I can and then limit the time I have left to do it. It happens before I'm alive and after I'm alive. That's about it. So one thing I did is I went to a program called Design the Life You Love. And Design the Life You Love was put on this one named Aisha Bursell, one of the world's top designers from Turkey. So she said, who are your heroes? Well, my heroes were Peter Drucker and Paul Hersey and Francis and Alan. Some of these people I've already talked about. She said, why were they your heroes? Well, they were great teachers. They taught me so much. and They never charged me money. She said, you should be more like them. I decided to adopt 15 people, teach them all they know for free. And the only price is when they get old, they have to do the same thing. I made a little video and put it on LinkedIn. And I said, my name is Marshall. I got ranked number one coach and number one thinker. And I'm getting old. And I want to adopt 15 people, teach them all they know for free. And the only price is you get old, you do the same thing. If you're interested, send me an email. Now, I thought 100 people would apply and I'd pick 15 people. 18,000 people applied. I now I've got 370 people who are in our group. Uber's in this group, right? Alan Lolly's in this group. Uh, Uber's wife, Autance, is in this group. They met in this group. So it's an amazing, amazing group of people. And um, so my goal is, I say, look, I'm going to give you all I know for free. And then the only price is you get old to give it to somebody else. Pay it forward. So this weekend, this upcoming weekend in Nashville, I'm going to have about now oh, 60, 70 people come and, I want to teach some classes about what I know. And then a couple of weeks later, I've got another 120 people coming and, you know, teach them all I know. So my goal is just make a difference as much best I can. And I mean, and on the micro level, let's talk about this podcast. What's the point of this? Well, let me give you my goal on this podcast. Are we ready? I think we're set. If a few people listening to this podcast have a little better life, 
This is a good podcast. I don't have to do anything beyond that. I'm right there with you in alignment there. Uh, you'd be surprised too, just the, the small impacts, what they lead to over time with some people. Um, it, it's one of the great pleasures of this show. Uh, one, one thing um, I, I would love to know, you've mentioned so many great people, uh, people who've been with us currently, people who aren't like Peter Drucker. If you could do this, Marshall, sit down, long form conversation, interview, just ask questions of someone dead or alive, who would you love to sit down and do that with? Buddha. Do you, is there a question you'd start off with? What advice do you have for me? <laughs> there'd, there'd be some in, incredible insights there. Marshall, this this has truly been a, a pleasure filled with actionable insights and incredible advice that, that's helpful both in business and in life. And we talked a little bit about your book, The Earned Life. Is there anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Anything else they should know? Any place they can stay connected with you and find out more hey, about your work? A couple of things. I give everything away. So again, all of my material, you may copy, share, download, duplicate, modify. You want to change it around? It's okay. Put your name on it. I don't care. I give everything away. Please use it any way you can. Go to my website. Go to YouTube. I've got hundreds of videos, articles. Any of my stuff help anybody? You help somebody help be a little better. Let's say somebody uses some of my stuff and helps somebody else. Indirectly, I'm helping that other person. So to me, go to my website, www.marshallrollsmith.com or YouTube or read a book or whatever. And again, don't just feel free to use it. Feel free to modify it. Let's say I like part of it, but I'm not like the other part. That's well, okay. Use the part you like. Change the other part. I don't care. <laughs> well, Marshall Goldsmith will continue the virtuous cycle here with continuing to share um, the, the great lessons we learned. But Marshall Goldsmith, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.